Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the war in Syria, forgotten in many quarters, is still actually going on. Bashar al-Assad controls most of the country, but some rebels are still resisting. Just last week, there were attacks on the last rebel stronghold in the northwest of the country, which left up to a dozen people dead. The war over the last decade has cost at least 350,000 lives and caused half the population of Syria to flee their homes including almost 6 million refugees who have had to go abroad. Remember, prior to 2011, Syria was a hugely developed country, albeit under the Assad dictatorship, and the standard of living was pretty high there. Could you imagine, for instance, a conflict in this country in which half the population would have to flee the island, basically? Just the size of it is astounding. One feature of the war has been that of the conduct of Assad. There are myriad and very credible allegations that he has ruthlessly murdered thousands of people, overseen the torture of as many again, and literally inflicted terror wherever he felt it would benefit his cause. Despite that, and largely because of Russian backing, he's still in power and looking relatively secure. In fact, there are recent reports that there are efforts to, if not rehabilitate him, then certainly allow him tiptoe back into the international mainstream. But what of his victims? They're scattered far and wide now across the globe and some of them are attempting to piece together enough evidence to ensure that one day Assad will be brought to justice. Their plight is the main feature of a new searing documentary, Bringing Assad to Justice, made by Irish filmmakers Ronan Tynan and Anne Daly. The film is receiving rave reviews and I'm joined now by Ronan Tynan. Ronan, you're very welcome. Good morning, Mick. Ronan, I've seen the movie and I have to say it's a fine piece of work and it's disturbing as well and, and um, congratulations on it. And this is the second film yourself and Anne have made on the subject of the war in Syria. Before getting to the, the film itself, what brought you to this subject? Well, uh, I suppose the truth is we were really very depressed and almost uh, traumatised after the first documentary we made on Syria, Syria, the Impossible Revolution, because not only did we meet so many people who were tortured and brutalised and forced to flee their own country, but there did not seem to be any hope of uh, a resolution, number one, or any chance of them returning, which they wanted to do, because obviously they would face torture and being murdered by the Assad regime a second time. And then we discovered uh, what I like to think of as a kind of, and Anne and myself discussed this, almost like a, a justice and accountability movement. Many Syrians who themselves were tortured and imprisoned, who were always, by the way, it's very important to remember this, uh, active in the peaceful uprising and never resorted to violence, as indeed it's very important for people to remember that most Syrians... Uh, were committed to a peaceful revolution when they went into the, and they didn't think of it as a revolution when they went into the streets as part of the Arab Spring in 2011. 
they did not want to uh, violently protest because they knew if it turned into a military-style confrontation, the Assad regime, just like it has happened, would wipe them out. Um, and therefore, when people talk about a war in Syria, uh, it really is, as the very famous uh, foreign correspondent Roy Gutman described it, as a war crime masquerading as a war. Because really, uh, when you gun people down in the streets when they're peacefully protesting, when you put huge areas under starvation sieges, when you force millions of people to flee these opposition areas as refugees, because you obviously don't want them to stay, well, the regime doesn't want them to stay, because it's interested as the uh, former head of Air Force Intelligence in Syria, a notorious arm of the repressive regime there, said it was better to have a, a Syria of uh, 10 million obedient people than 30 million vandals. It does give a very good indication of the nation's society. So after making the first film, we, we were seeing this situation. And at the same time, Syria again was being completely misrepresented in the media. The, the word terrorist was being bandied about against people who never resorted to violence, who were completely committed to peaceful means. And it was extremely, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, quite alarming. And then suddenly we discovered these people like um, Anwar al-Buni, a very famous Syrian human rights lawyer who worked for years in Syria, was imprisoned and tortured, uh, often working pro bono for political prisoners, people who were trying to peacefully resist the regime. And another very famous figure, Mazen Darwish, who was one of the key figures in the peaceful uprising and very well-known Syrian um, a human rights lawyer who now based in Paris and were based in Berlin, organising uh, efforts to uh, seek to take regime members uh, to trial for crimes against humanity, reminding the world of these horrific crimes that are going on. Now, Ronan, could I just stop you there and ask you this? And, and again, it's just putting things in context. As, as you say, perhaps some of it was misrepresented. And the idea people have, for example, in a civil war is that you have two sides. The obvious, I suppose, example most of us would resort to is the civil war that occurred here back in 1922 or, or, or whatever. But these kind of wars, they become vicious and this one got particularly vicious. And to be fair, they tend to be vicious on both sides. So why is bringing Assad to justice such a major issue? What did he do that anybody in his position would not have done? Look, the Assad family has ruled Syria. Uh, well, Assad's father ruled Syria the same way as Assad Jr., who's now in charge, Bashar al-Assad. You know, as um, Salwa who was a well-known academic, actually, as she described it, you know, the, the torture and the massacre are instruments of governance in Syria. And the remarkable thing about people going to Syria before the uh, peaceful uprising, they would have had an impression of a country that, you know, on a fine day, as you made the point, living standards looked OK. Uh, people, you know, the, the level of repression was so serious that people knew they did not or you know, would never speak in public about this. The country was known as the kingdom of silence. You know, the repression was so successful. So in other words, Assad continued to rule the way his father did. His father massacred so many in Hama when he had a similar kind of uprising. He crushed it almost relatively instantly compared to the current regime. But Assad, uh, Bashar al-Assad, on the other hand, 
uh, was not able to do that. He resorted to military means to crush a peaceful uprising and initially it didn't work. And then what he began doing was, they obviously he obviously embarked on a military solution, but he began re- releasing hardened jihadists from his own prisons to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Jihadists who were always eager to take up arms, who believed in the same type of criminal dictatorship that Assad pursues, you know, in terms of repressing people and not respecting human rights. So and then he could call everybody a terrorist, which they began doing, as we show in the film as well. So in a sense, it's it's like the regime is very much run on the lines of a mafia. And when I first heard that myself, I thought this is just an exaggeration. But if you look today, stories that don't get any coverage at all, uh, Captagon is regarded as the poor man's cocaine in the Middle East. And the Assad regime makes more money out of Captagon now than the flatlining economy. You know, it's more important in GDP than anything else. It's unbelievable. And at the same time, the regime is also involved in, an, in a huge program to blackmail refugees abroad, where, for example, if you have family in Syria you, and you've managed to get out of the country as a refugee and they find you or they know where you are, they will threaten you to take your family's home in Syria if you don't cough up a few thousand dollars, which is a huge amount to a refugee. This, this is the criminal nature of the regime. We see it similar in the way they, we, you and I, through taxes, have helped to bankroll the regime because the UN and former UN officials have gone on the record about this, even writing books about it. Um, you know, the, the regime has been allowed to uh, misappropriate aid uh, on, a, on a grand scale, you know, for example, phony charities have been set up and they fund murderous militias and so forth. So, you know, why do we make this film? You know, that's exactly it. We had to expose this because you, people talk about a civil war. Certainly there were jihadists there, but it's well known that Assad never attacked ISIS. Uh, it was ISIS when they came along. They, in the early stages, were fight, began fighting the the opposition, the armed opposition that emerged out of the peaceful uprising. And that was poisoned by all these jihadists who had fled from, from all over the place. And then it was the Kurds in the end who really fought, the did the hard lifting in terms of destroying ISIS backed by the US, while the Russians and the Assad regime and the Iranians had the cheek to say they were fighting ISIS when we all know now. And the evidence is there. Their primary focus was in eliminating the opposition in destroying opposition areas, using starve and surrender sieges, causing the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. And as uh, Jamal Hassan pointed out, better to have a country with 10 million obedient people than 30 million vandals. Okay. Um, And just before getting to the movie, and again, this is because, you know, as you said, there are various narratives put out there. So just to deal, just in particular one of them, one of the narratives that's put out there, Ronan, is that those who portray Assad, as you have very cogently there, that there's an element in it that uh, it's a Western perspective and that because, to some extent, Syria and Assad is a proxy of Russia, that it's really uh, just using Assad in that sort of Russia-US conflict as, as, a, as a target in that sense and demonising him as such. Now, that's a narrative that's put out there. You'll be aware of that yourself. And why does that narrative get any traction, do you think? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I would say that the Russians and the Americans, you know, are pretty ruthless in the way they they use the, the geopolitical situation for their own ends. But there's no question that the Russians have engaged in well-documented massacres, 
They've shown no regard for civilians since they began bombing in the country in September uh, 2015, as several reports about the bombing of hospitals show. And in fact, in the documentary, many listeners will know Maliki Brown, very popular and well-known Irish journalist. He did some remarkable analysis in the New York Times showing how the Russians targeted hospitals in Syria. Now, I know you don't want to talk about the film first, but just chiming into this narrative, this this narrative, this is the old Cold War narrative. And unfortunately, many even friends on the left have fallen into this trap that they're so used to attacking the United States for bombing uh, developing countries and in the so-called, you know, in the developing world and so forth, that they seem to think that every dictator who engages in gross human rights violations, if he's somewhat time, if he's engaged in opposing the evil US empire as they see it, he must be good. I mean, this is a ridiculous perspective. It's ignoring the human rights of Syrians on the ground. They're just like you and I. You made the point about Syria being a relatively well-off country. The country has, in many places, been bombed back to the Stone Age. These were people like you and I who got sick and tired of dictatorship, sick and tired of corruption. They engaged in mass peaceful protests. And you meet these people well-educated, highly qualified, were successful in their professional lives and so forth and leading trade unionists and so forth in refugee camps in Europe and trying to get asylum in Europe today because they just got tired of dictatorship. This reality, shamefully, has unfortunately uh, been denied or or ignored by much of the media and it was a driving force in our desire to make this film because the evidence, and boy, have we... uh, have we seen so much evidence. I mean, it's staggering. There's a huge, yeah, I have to say, Ronan, there's a huge amount of evidence in the in the movie. And now that you touched on Maliki Brown, I was going to mention him, people may or may not know, and it, it, it's not adding or detracting from the man's own quite exceptional talent as a journalist. He's a nephew, of course, of Vincent Brown, who I think most people will know. But his video analysis in the New York Times of the manner in which uh, and the way it was put together of the manner in which uh, the, the regime targeted hospitals and literally targeted them on the basis that this would inflict the most terror to do this. That is quite amazing in it. Just in, in more general terms and, and um, just some of the early stuff that's in there, Ronan, in particular, you've testimony there from a woman who was held in, I think they call it Security Branch 227, at cell one by one and a half metres, allowed to go to the bathroom at 2 or 3 a.m. was the only time, tortured every day, and when they were going to the bathroom, they literally used to see the bodies of the people who'd been murdered inside in that prison. I mean, it, it, it it's quite shocking stuff. Another thing that's there, and this is interesting, is that your film opens in Germany where there's a trial of two security officials for crimes against humanity. And the kernel of the whole thing would seem to be that that's a very rare occurrence and at the heart of the problem. And it is that Assad and those around him are effectively insulated from any form of international justice. Exactly. And that was precisely why we thought this film was so important to make to try to draw attention to the fact, number one, that these horrific crimes are still going on. Number two, there's mountains of evidence uh, to convict the the regime leaders. In fact, more evidence, as you heard in the film, than the Allies had against the Nazis at the end of World War II at Nuremberg. But very important about that amazing trial in Germany at the moment is there are many such torture prisons 
and Colonel Aslan was the head of 261. But as I said, there are many 261s in Syria and it, it gives a remarkable insight into the extreme torture being carried out by this regime. And those who dismiss this as propaganda, you know, in fairness, they really need to do their homework. They need to do their research. Now, we've made it easy for them through this film. Uh, now, the film obviously is, 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 is not unwatchable because we obviously had to use drawings and so forth because a lot of the evidence, even the video evidence, would be unwatchable by ordinary people because the horrors perpetrated by the Assad regime rival that of ISIS. But the difference between the Assad regime and ISIS is the Assad regime has done it on an industrial scale across Syria and have killed, ISIS probably has only killed about 2 or 3% of the numbers of civilians that the regime has killed. So it gives you a flavour for the scale of this regime. And unfortunately, the media coverage does in no way reflect that, even today. You know, for example, Sednaya prison in Damascus, a notorious place. Amnesty has called it a, a, a human slaughterhouse. It's still open. It's a SADS Auschwitz. And I bet you, you never heard that about that place until you saw the document. No, I didn't run. Tell me about uh, an individual who features prominently also, and this is the man that's called Caesar. Now, Caesar is an extraordinarily courageous individual. Uh, he was a forensic photographer in Syria. They have a number of forensic photographers doing the same work he was doing. And when he, uh, when the regime began crushing the peaceful uprising, you know, torturing people to death, starving them to death in prison, they wanted their forensic photographers. They had to go in every day and photograph the bodies. It's remarkable. The Nazis did not photograph the Jews during the Holocaust who they starved to death, who they tortured to death. But in Syria, that's what the Assad regime did. The system, it's remarkable how these dictatorships, uh, you know, sometimes go to these extreme levels. So when Caesar saw what was going on, he did not want any part of it. And Caesar obviously is a code name to protect him and his family. So he wanted to flee, but he was persuaded, like the evidence that he could gather by, by sending these images abroad, and which have been and are so crucial now and will probably play a huge role when Assad is eventually brought to justice in convicting him for crimes against humanity, because they show the extreme torture going on. So, But when Caesar decided to stay, he took a decision. He put his own life on the line. He put his family on the line. And one thing which has always horrified us about the Syrian regime is how they don't just kill the parents, they kill the children. They torture the children. It's a fact of the Syrian regime, which is really quite chilling. So the decision Caesar had to make to continue that work, you know, I mean, think you and I, our families at risk. We, when you see the tortured bodies in, in the prison yard, I mean, think about it. They could do that to my children if I you know, so it was a remarkably courageous decision and ultimately led to, you know, drawing massive attention to the crimes that are going on. But unfortunately, not enough outrage to get more people demanding that Assad is brought to justice. Yeah. And as, as you said, the thing that struck me about him is his family and and himself and, and the point of view. And I think it's actually made in the film that he effectively could have been murdered at the drop of a hat by either side. I mean, if Assad found out 
that he was at this. God help us, what would have happened to him or his family? And yet if he was stopped in the street in possession of some of these photographs or if he was known to be the person photographing inside, any number of rebel factions could decide he was a stooge for Assad and do the same thing to him there. So it it seems to have been a remarkable uh, a remarkable thing he did. And as you said, uh, in, in terms of physical evidence, what he gathered was, was quite amazing. I think... Uh, as a result of his work, I think up to 7,000 victims have been identified. Yeah, the other point which I think people need to bear in mind, and even ourselves when we look at the film can sometimes forget that there were a number of forensic photographers doing the same work in different parts of Syria. So you can imagine the tens of thousands who may have been tortured to death in a similar way that we see in the Caesar files, as they're called, the Caesar photos. Uh, which again, you know, I mean, we're talking about crimes here on a par with the Holocaust. The numbers aren't the same, but the commitment to exterminating, annihilating entire families, whole, anybody identified with the opposition to the regime in any way. And remember in Syria, there's no such thing as habeas corpus. There's no human rights, no access to the courts in the normal way. So even if they think you're a potential opponent, you're liable to end up that way. Um, The other person, and I have to, like, in, in one way, we shouldn't go there. The vast majority of people here are Syrians who've been through trauma and their families and all. But I, I think it's just somebody on the basis that she's a journalist who was vital to getting word out. And she, she'd probably be well known to people. That's Mary Colvin, who worked for the Sunday Times. And she died in a bombing um, by the Syrian regime. And you've gone into her case to a certain extent and it certainly seems that the media centre where she was based was specifically targeted again just to take out the journalists who could report what was going on and her case advanced to a point where there was a civil action in in the United States over her murder. Now that is that is a, a very very important case because it's the first time all the evidence that has been gathered in Syria by groups like Sija, which we saw in that secret location in Europe where they have 800,000 pages of evidence, which was seized from the intelligence centres in the early part uh, after the uprising. Uh, and they've managed to gather it. Now, they still have quite a lot of evidence left in Syria, but they can't get it out. Um, but that's the first time that evidence was used in a court case. And it's very important to remember in that civil case in the United States, it was subjected to the normal, uh, very serious and severe cross-examination that any evidence would be subjected to in an American court. And the judge found the Assad his regime responsible for her murder, a, a major breakthrough and gave hope and gives hope to Syrians that someday there will be justice for them. And indeed, Paul Conroy, who was very helpful to us in making this film, he was with Mary Colvin. He was critically He's a photographer. That's right. He was the photographer who always worked with Mary Colvin, probably one of the most famous uh, conflict uh, photojournalists in the world today. Uh, he was with her when that happened. And he made a very interesting point in the film, which is being borne out, that when Russia vetoed the referral of Syria to the International Criminal Court, it fell to people on the ground to begin the process of taking the regime to court. And in a sense, that's what we see in Germany with those torture trials using universal jurisdiction. And in fact, it's a point we in Ireland should consider adopting universal jurisdiction because it will allow people from any country to come to this country to seek justice against the regime that has tortured them. And that's a very important principle, universal jurisdiction. 
some countries have it. We unfortunately do not have it to this. Germany is a model. And that's why Germany is a major center for people taking action against tyrannical regimes, because the crime does not have to be committed on German soil. The people taking the cases don't have to be. Uh, well, obviously, the German prosecutor undertakes the case, you know, if the evidence is there. It's not a solution, really. To, uh, it doesn't replace the International Criminal Court, but it certainly makes it very difficult for the regime because international arrest warrants have been issued against members of the regime already. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. And somebody makes the point also in the in, in the film that international law was designed for old wars, not the kind of wars we're seeing now and the way they're able to be conducted and that. But would the situation in terms of to use the title for the movie, Ronan, Bringing Assad to Justice. Would it change if Russia withdrew its support? And is there any possibility of that? Uh, no, it's very, I told, it's very important at the moment. You're absolutely right, of course. It would make a huge difference. But it's not just Russia. Iran makes up 80% of Assad's forces through quite uh, extreme uh, militias who are brought in from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from Iran itself, as well as its own Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Scuds Force. And of course, uh, the Hezbollah, which has played a major role uh, in keeping the Assad regime afloat. Of course, Russia has provided the essential air force. Uh, and bolsters the regime's ability to hold on because Russia only got involved when the regime was about to fall because without that air air power, even with the massive Iranian support, it could not have survived. Uh, so your, the answer to your question is yes, of course. In a sense, Assad is a prisoner of Russia and Iran now. Obviously, he's happy to have them, I'm quite sure, because it keeps him alive in, in power. But uh, yeah, Russia and Iran are standing in the way of a, a peaceful resolution of the Syrian conflict at the moment. No, the other thing that arises is there's a major dilemma in, in, in the, among the international community in that, as you say, and it's been said before, the country was effectively bombed back to the Stone Age in certain parts of it, and there is a massive rebuilding job required. So how does the international community help rebuild Syria with Assad still in power? Well, obviously, the international community should not rebuild Syria while Assad is in power for two reasons. And, and does that mean that those who remain in there, where, where does that leave them then, Ronan? Well, the point is that if you give money to Assad to rebuild, first of all, it's a very corrupt regime. Uh, the regime will siphon off quite a lot of that cash. It'll end up in numbered accounts in Switzerland. You remember Assad's uncle had already built up, uh, and he was just he was very involved in the Halle massacre or the Hamam massacre, and he built up a big fortune in France, but was forced back to Syria, lucky to escape a sentence recently. So it's such a corrupt regime, you're wasting your money. The second point is that money will be used to rebuild the torture prisons, bolster a very repressive regime at the, at the moment, and give no hope to Syria. There is only one course of action, and it's really deplorable at the moment, uh, the way the you know that there is insufficient pressure being brought on by the West to resolve this uh, the situation in a way that would see justice and accountability at its heart. That would mean the freeing of detainees, and it's very important to remember. The regime feared, as we showed in the film, peaceful activists, lawyers, trade unionists, people like that who would build a democracy. They didn't care about jihadists. The jihadists are a convenient cover for them. They can say they're fighting terrorists as they're wiping out all opposition. There is no future for Syria 
uh, under Assad unless you want to restore a very brutal dictatorship. And the very important final point, Mick, and I think people really need to remember this, there are well over 6 million Syrian refugees, most of whom are terrified to go back to the country where some countries are trying to force them back at the moment because they're afraid they'll end up in Assad's torture prisons. And only in the last few days, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have both issued reports showing that returning refugees to Syria have been subjected to torture, have been disappeared, have been subjected to sexual violence and have been murdered by the regime. So we're not dealing, you know, there's no solution to the refugee crisis in bolstering Assad. Assad says, yeah, send back the refugees. But the point is, when they go back, as Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have shown, they are subjected to horrific abuse. As I said, this regime really is happier with a smaller population. As, as you know, I go back to Jamal Hassan's part about the obedient people versus the, yeah. the vandals, you know. So where, do, where does that leave the country in, in terms of, like, you do hear people talking about rebuilding Syria. A friend, a friend of mine, the UN, suggested to me there last year that's going to be one of the biggest things facing the international community. So, like, you seem to be suggesting, Ron, with good reason, that you don't rebuild Syria, that you can't do so while Assad is still there. So where does that leave the future of Syria? Well, obviously, if Syria is not going to be rebuilt while Assad is there, that creates a dynamic that will lead Assad to justice without a shadow of doubt because the present situation is not sustainable. But in that regard, I think it's very important to highlight the, 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 the UN has lost huge credibility in Syria. Just in the last few days, you may not be following this closely on social media, but Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, has come in for severe criticism because you see him laughing and joking with the Syrian foreign minister. He gets he takes a photograph at a, a famous mosque in Damascus, giving this false impression that Syria is a normal country. He does not challenge the regime about the recent uh, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch reports that show returning refugees have been murdered raped, tortured and disappeared. You know, the UN, we're beginning to wonder, you know, uh, has human has the UN lost interest in supporting human rights, you know, at, at in the humanitarian level? Of course, the UN has played a very noble role in providing, you know, container loads of evidence, you know, about the regime's crimes. But the humanitarian wing of the UN has allowed the Assad regime to remain afloat, stealing humanitarian aid that you and I pay for in our taxes. And then that same human rights, that same humanitarian agency are asking about rebuilding Syria. In fact, you know, they enjoy immunity, the humanitarians, from prosecution. But I'm beginning to think, has that area passed? They have to examine their consciences here, you know. Could it be, and I, I, I honestly don't know, this is me speculating, but could it be that they've come to the conclusion that unfortunately... And much as it's, it, it disgusts most people, that that man has retained power and that therefore, if there's to be any future for the country or for its people, that unfortunately they have to work with him. Could that be their approach? And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it, it, you have to wonder about people who, 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 um, who do that kind of work. Is that where they're coming from? Well, first of all, it's very important that everybody listening is aware that if they adopt that attitude, they are not only uh, violating human rights law, they are violating humanitarian law because no humanitarian is legally allowed 
uh, under any statute to continue to provide aid to a regime that it knows it is systematically torturing, disappearing, sexually abusing and killing civilians they are supposed to be feeding. The approach by UN humanitarians who adopt that approach is it's a bit like fattening people up for slaughter and there is no moral legal or other justification for it. And unfortunately, in fact, I will say this to you now, at a, one of these um, think tank meetings where you're not supposed to, you know, under Chatham House rules, I challenged Filippo Grande once, and he, I was so shocked by his, you know, these humanitarians, they don't just, you know, I don't want to be rude or personal now, but they don't seem to realise they have a huge responsibility not only to feed and clothe refugees, they have a legal responsibility to protect them as well. And I would say respectfully to Filippo, listen, it's not about feeding people and sheltering people if they're going to be disappeared, tortured, raped and murdered by the regime. You have a responsibility to call out that regime, withdraw from that territory, create a massive international crisis of conscience for the world but not to just go along with that. I mean, this is like justifying hell on earth. I mean, you know, we really need to take a rain check here. This is another reason why we made that film, because we wanted people to realise this is not just Ronan Tynan spouting off. There are hundreds of thousands of pages of high quality evidence to prove these crimes have been committed, are going on, and we now know will continue unless something is done about it. Yeah, and I have to say, one way or the other, Ronan, the film you and Anne put together, Bringing Assad to Justice, is certainly a searing indictment of Assad. And it should be watched by anybody who has any interest in human rights and in ensuring that the international organisations do the right thing in attempting to do what can be done for Syria and the state it has now been left in. Ronan, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Mick. A pleasure as usual. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. And remember to sign up for your digital subscription to the Irish Examiner to stay really informed and maybe a little entertained. We'll see you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.